Well, I want to welcome you again to Door Creek. Thanks for joining us online, wherever you are. It's good to be here. And we're excited that next week, if you actually want to get to a worship service in person after six months, you guys, that you could actually join us right here at our Sprecher Road campus on Thursday night, September 10th at 7 o'clock. So if you're going to do that, make sure you RSVP, bring a mask and a heart full of praise to God and maybe a friend who doesn't yet know him. So anyways, we're excited about that. Those of you that aren't ready, we get it. Totally get it. So we're ready when you are, but this was the first small step, safe step, that we wanted to take as we move towards reopening our three campuses. It was about four years ago, and uh, Jim Carrey was part of the Golden Globe Awards. In fact, he was going to be giving the award for the best motion, motion picture in comedy, and so he had a little shtick before he gave the award. It went something like this. Hi, my name's Jim Carrey, and I'm a two-time Golden Globe winner. And uh, you know what? When, uh, when, I, when I go to sleep, I'm not just any guy. I, I am Jim Carrey, the two-time Golden Globe winner. And when I dream, I don't just dream ordinary dreams. I actually dream about being a three-time Golden Globe winner, to which everybody started to chuckle. And then he said that. He said this, because I know when I'm the three-time Golden Globe winner, It'll, it'll be enough. Uh, I'll, it'll finally be true that, you know, that I've arrived, become something. And I could give up this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And amidst the, the, the banter and, and the laughter, there was this, this kind of shocking reality like, yeah, that's true. It won't. And we're chasing all these things that we know won't ultimately satisfy. He's echoing the teaching of the preacher, the teacher, King Solomon, the one whose book we've been studying, Ecclesiastes, this summer. He's picking up on that theme, right? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The teacher Solomon's been uh, teaching all kinds of things about life under the sun, this world, and this twisted fallen place that's under God's curse. Work is hard. It wears us out. You can amass a fortune only to pass it on to one of your heirs that squanders it all. You can have all kinds of remarkable achievements, make a great name for yourself, and within a generation, nobody knows who you are. The meaning of life is elusive, finding satisfaction near impossible. Life is filled with sorrow, injustice, oppression. And to make matters worse, we, we try to please ourselves and live for ourselves. Money, pleasure, power, whatever pursuit we're after, they ultimately don't satisfy, he says. The certainty of death only leads to despair, and he concludes life is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So what he's been doing in this book has been tearing down, tearing down all the ideas and notions that we might have to pursue life and meaning in life and, and satisfaction and happiness and contentment. And he's saying, I tried it all, but it just doesn't satisfy. We've had a sniff of it. We've had a taste of it, and it's been bitter all the way through, even though we've been tempted to try the same paths and so as we finish our study in chapters 11 and 12 
this week. We, we remember where we just were. Solomon says, as you pursue wisdom, you know, don't forget that. And then in chapter 11 and 12, he says, but remember God. Remember your creator. And in these passages here in chapters 11 and 12, he's going to ask us three critical questions. The first is this. Are we seizing the day or has the uncertainty of life actually left us paralyzed? So we just are stuck. We don't know what to do. Second question. Are we enjoying life or is it by chance that we're actually dancing with the wrong partner? And finally... Are we remembering God? Are we fearing God or are we afraid of God? So let's get into the very first question. Question one, are we seizing the day or has the uncertainty of life paralyzed us? Grab your Bibles. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and I'm going to be reading in verse 1 through 6 here. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and at evening. Let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. So the very first question. And as he asks us about our approach to life, are we seizing the day or are we stuck and paralyzed? He's just reminding us it's easy to be stuck and paralyzed because life is so unpredictable. Disasters happen. We don't need a lesson on the unpredictability of life. Come on, right? It's been six months that we've been navigating a worldwide pandemic. The people in Lake Charles, Louisiana, doesn't, don't have to tell us about how life can change radically in one blowy day. We don't control the weather or nature. Disasters are as predictable as a black cloud showering us with rain or with a tree falling right beside where it once stood tall. How can we understand God's mysteries, the conundrums, the puzzle of life? When we can't sort out the path of the wind or how God forms new life in the womb. So Solomon says, get after life. Get after it. Live it to the hilt. Ship. Invest. Plant. These are words of action. Seize the day. Live boldly. Don't be paralyzed when you don't know what to do. Right now, don't be paralyzed when you're waiting for perfect, the perfect time, the perfect place, the perfect person, the perfect conditions. Seize the day as an act of trust in God, the one, chapter 9, verse 1, who holds our life and all that we do in his good, strong, powerful hands. 
We can't always explain what God is up to, but we can trust the God who is up to all things, that he can use and make all things good, even the hard things, not that they are good, that he can use them for good, Romans 8, 28. That was the life of faith that characterized a young man, William Borden. He came from a very wealthy family. His family made a a fortune in the silver mines in Colorado. After graduating from Yale and then Princeton Seminary, William Borden felt God's call to go serve him in China, to be a missionary. Many of his family and friends thought him foolish for giving up the wealth, the influence, the life of luxury that he could have enjoyed. Why not do something enjoyable than throw your life away for some people so far away? So he's making his way to China. He's stopped in Egypt where he contracts meningitis and in a few weeks. William Borden dies. Before he dies, he writes this on a note, kind of almost his epitaph. No reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. That's seizing the day. And there's nothing like a pandemic, right, right now, that has us stuck in neutral, maybe in a big-time funk. And we're just waiting for this storm to pass. We're longing for what was in the past, and we're looking for better days. And God's saying, I'm giving you today. You don't have February, and you don't have October. You got today. Seize it with all you have for my honor and glory. So where's God asking you to be bold today? To to move out, to invest, to plant something that's going to be a long way off in a return and growth and harvest. Where is that? That's a great question for this week. God, am I stuck? Am I moving with you? Help me know where you want me to move, where to go, where to invest, where to plant. Then there's the second question. Are we enjoying life? Or are we dancing with the wrong partner? We'll come to that in just a second. Look down, chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet. And it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. There it is. Enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you're young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body. For youth and vigor are meaningless. So here we go. Solomon's saying we don't just have to seize the day. We need to enjoy the day that we're chasing with all that strength that God has given us. He's saying, not only enjoy the day, but expect hard times. This is really important. Enjoy the sunshine. 
But expect storms to come. And guys, sometimes lightning will strike out of a clear blue sky. He said, expect it. Now, to this point in the book, he's been talking about joy. Joy is a gift from God that we receive from his good hand. And now he's commanding us to actually pursue it, whether it's sunny or stormy. And verse 10 gives us the keys. There are two commands here which help us understand how it is that we could pursue joy when we're stuck when we're stuck in a pandemic, when we're stuck in a bad relationship, when we're stuck in a bad job, when we're stuck in not knowing what to do, where to go, where to turn to, when life is hard, when the storms are breaking out everywhere. How in the world can I enjoy life? Well, he tells us. He says you got to banish anxiety. And anxiety, guys, is in, in the original here is more than just worrying. It's actually the idea of an angry bitterness. You, you got to banish that. And you got to cast off not just trouble, but literally the word for trouble here is evil. The stuff that the Bible calls sin that just trips us up. Banish it. Throw it over. Jettison it. So he's speaking to the youth, but he's speaking to all of us, right? In our world, it's too easy, even for a young person, to have bitterness creep in and dominate. Your parents' divorce can do that. The job transfer that had you move to where your junior year in high school? Come on, you got every right to be bitter, you said. Your friends, you thought they were your friends, so you heard what they were saying behind your back. Bitterness, a broken relationship, bitterness, the shattering of a life dream, Bitterness, a pandemic, which causes you to lose a season of sports, an educational opportunity, that job that was promised you in February that was no longer in play in March. Lots of reasons for bitterness and sorrow. But what he says is, you, you can't just let that root itself in your life. you got to banish it. And the way you do that is... The way you get over bitterness is you hand the bitterness over to God. You hand it over to God. You do that as you forgive those who've wronged you. You do that as you rest and trust that your life is in his good hands. They're powerful, they're loving, they're strong, they're faithful. And even though this doesn't make sense, that you could one day say like Joseph said, talking about in the midst of the story when he didn't know the end of the story, Ah, you meant it for evil, you brothers that sold me into slavery, but God meant it for good to save many people. There's a second key here to enjoying life and pursuing joy, and this is the command to cast off evil. The Bible from the very beginning is clear. Obedience brings blessing. Joy and obedience run hand in hand. The commentator Derek Kidner so eloquently says this, joy was created to dance with goodness alone. Hence the question, who are we dancing with? So think about the things that we need to cast off. Hatred, our anger, our violence, our jealousy and envy and greed and lying and slander and lust and sexual sin and addictions to drug and alcohol 
and on and on the list goes. We cast it off. How do we do that? Because some of us are shackled by it. We're under the weight of this guilt. We, we're just drowning in it. How do we cast it off? Biblically, it's clear. We confess it. We name it. Here's what David said when he didn't confess his sin in, in Psalm 32, verse 3. So this is King David. This would be Solomon's dad who had an adulterous affair that ended up in murder. And he said this, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. When I kept silent, when I didn't confess, it just tore me up and wasted me. So, guys, until we deal with bitterness and our sin, joy will always slip through our fingers. we got to deal with bitterness by giving it to God, forgiving those. we got to deal with sin by giving it to God, confessing it, acknowledging it, owning it, and owning that we've offended God and the hurt that's there and the offense against other people and a commitment to obey. We've got to seek God's forgiveness and we've got to walk in repentance so we turn away from where we've been going and turn back to trusting God. And so somebody's listening to me right now and, and God has given you a clue to your unhappiness. He's given you action points for your bitterness. He's asking us, is there bitterness that needs to be uprooted? Is there sin that's just entangled us in our lives that needs to be confessed and forgiven? So that brings us to the final question. Are we remembering God? Fearing God, as the text will say, or afraid of God? Chapter 12. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. And the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. He's speaking about the approach of death. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. When the grinders cease because they are few. And those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When people rise up to the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. So we come to remembering God. And with this, he draws things to a close. Because it's really an important question to ask, how do I exactly seize the day and pursue joy when disaster strikes? 
that day of darkness comes rolling in? How do you do it when you're given months to live? When you're served divorce papers on the day after your birthday? How do you do it when your own child takes their own life or dies of an unknown disease? How do you do it when your marriage is crumbling and in shambles? When you've lost your job? When you stepped out in faith only to be roughed up and seemingly be in a free fall? How do you do it? Psalmist says you remember your creator. So we got to ferret that out. Because remembering your creator is not, don't forget him. Like mom used to say, like, hey, you run out the door, don't forget your books, your backpack, your lunch. No, remembering God is not a mental exercise. It, it's actually, and it's a way of life. Remembering God is how we remember someone's birthday or an anniversary. Like, that's coming up for me in a couple of weeks. And I, I'm going to remember it. And I'm not going to remember it by saying on September 26th, Hey, Lar, it's our anniversary. Did you remember? I did. No, no, no. Remembering is acting on it. I'm thinking about it. I'm putting a card together. I'm expressing my affection and love and gratitude for my soulmate, this wonderful gift from God, celebrating 39 years this year. I'm, I'm thinking about dinner. Am I making it? Are we going out? Are we going to get away? We're acting on it. The Bible talks a lot about God remembering his people. And whenever he's remembering his people, he's acting on their behalf, whether it's no in the midst of a really bad place. Or Rachel or Hannah, who were infertile and couldn't conceive. He's acting on their behalf. And when we remember God, we too are acting on his behalf. In an ongoing commitment of trust that's expressed in obedience. So life is short. He's saying, remember God before the sun sets on your life. Remember God before the keepers of your house, your legs and arms tremble and you head to the grave. Remember God before gravity wins the battle in your life and your shoulders stoop and your eyes can't meet the horizon. Remember God when you lose your teeth, the grinders. Your eyes go bad, the windows grow dim. You can't hear the birds chirping because you're deaf. Remember God when your hair turns the color of the white blossomed of the almond tree. Remember God when you lose your desire for making love. Remember God when you return and before you return to the ground and your spirit returns to God. Remember God. And so that's where he ends. And he tells us this is what it looks like to remember God. Verses 13 and 14. Here's what it looks like to remember God. And this is his conclusion at the end of the day. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here it is. Fear God. He's talked about this four times now, giving us hints of this conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. How do we remember God? We fear God. We trust Him. We love Him. 
We serve him. We grow to know him. And that love is expressed in obedience. It's the New Testament. It's the Old Testament language for the New Testament concept of faith, of trust, of believing God, fearing God. It's not being afraid of God. It's, it's packed with reverence. In fact, earlier on in chapter 8, verse 12, we read this. It'll go better, Solomon says, with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. So it's this trembling trust. It's this reverent awe that comes from seeing God for who he is and responding rightly with this humble, affectionate obedience. This reverent awe, this trembling trust. So he gives us two reasons why we should do it. First, he says, in the back half of verse 13, it's the duty of all mankind. Actually, if you go back to the original language Hebrew, the word duty isn't there. It's supplied. What he's saying is, it's all of mankind. This is like, this is who we are. We were created for his glory, Isaiah 43, 7. We were created to know God. He's our creator. To have a relationship with God. Some of us are trying to figure out who we are. And we're trying to find our identity in what we do. And we got to find our identity in whose we are. We belong to God. He created us. And we ought to fear God because that's the duty of mankind. That's what we were made for. A relationship with God where we flourish. Where we flourish. There's a second motivation. It's very different. And it's this whole idea of judgment that every deed, can you imagine? Every hidden thing that you've tucked away, the things good and bad, the things that we've forgotten, the things that we would run out of this room screaming if it started to play on the screen, the, the thing that you just can't get over and over and over we're going to give an account. And Solomon's saying, are, are you prepared to meet God? If you fear God, you're, you're ready. You're trusting God. If you're afraid of God, because you've been trying to run your life, you're not ready. You're not ready. Herb Miller tells the story in his book, Actions Speak Louder Than Verbs, of two Kentucky farmers who uh, owned some racing stables, and they really into racing horses. They weren't professionals, but they were competitive amateurs. So there was an upcoming steeplechase race, and the two guys had horses that they were going to enter, and one of the guys said, you know what? I don't need to ride this horse. I'm going to get a professional jockey to ride my horse to victory. That's what he did. Horses took off. The two horses of these two farmers are way ahead of the pack. They're coming up to the last fence when both of them drop in a heap. The professional jockey gets up on his feet, jumps on the horse, and he crosses the finish line. He's heading back to the paddock, and his boss is furious. He's just fuming. You can see his veins bulging, his face turning crimson red. He goes, what's going on, man? I won, didn't I? And the farmer says, yeah, you won. But you got up on the wrong horse. Now this book doesn't really end with that kind of humor, does it? Solomon's actually been saying the whole time, I was riding the wrong horse. 
And guys, maybe we've been on the wrong horse. Maybe we've been trusting in all kinds of different things for the things we thought would bring us enjoyment, success in life. The one we trust when we fear God is the one who's God's indescribable gift, even Jesus Christ. The one who came for us, right? Oh man, did he seize the day all the way to the cross. The one who enjoyed life, hmm, yes he did. He actually said this, for the joy, or the scriptures say this in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of pleasing the Father and bringing us back to the Father. He gave up his life that we might find life. And he trusted his father to the end that he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my soul. And so for some of us, we go, I feel like I've wasted my life. I feel like this root of bitterness has become a sequoia that has ruined my life and relationships. You go, I am so entangled with sin and, and drowning in guilt. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. And the scriptures are clear. Go run to the cross. Run to Jesus. His arms are open wide. There isn't anything you've done. There isn't anything you could do that would stop and separate you from the love of God. You fall before him and say, God, have mercy. Jesus, I trust you that you came for me, lived a perfect life for me, died in my place, and you're coming again. Give me forgiveness. Remove my guilt. Give me contentment and satisfaction and joy in the midst of this twisted, fallen world. Have you done that? Trust Christ. Let's pray. So, Father God, we need your mercy and grace, thanking you for your word that is a mirror to our own hearts. Lord, we, we need your spirit to show us who we are and where we are. Whether we're running without you, behind you, or in step with you, we want to be right with you, Lord. Give us faith to believe that you're good, that you're loving, that you are worth trusting, Lord. Help us as we're coming to the end of all these pursuits like Solomon to understand that you are the maker of this world and our lives and it makes sense to turn to you, a loving God, a loving Father who sent your only Son that we might find you and life in you. And so God, have mercy on us. Bring forgiveness and mercy to those who are wallowing in it right now. Breathe new life into us, we pray. Fill us with hope that we might, like Solomon, say at the end of the day, trusting you makes sense of life today and forever. In your strong name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.